We're the talk of the internet. Talkzone.com. It's time for Healthy Talk Radio. By the power vested in me, by the Federal Communications Commission. Coming to you live from the headquarters of the Global Health Network and across the world wide web. <gasps> Computers can do that? It's America's longest running radio program dedicated to your health and wellness. What's taking place here is an alternative approach. Now, the woman who's changing the face of healthcare each and every day. That's the fact, Jack! Here's Deborah Ray. Good day. Welcome to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Well, a new survey out from Consumer Reports reveals we do care. 92% of U.S. consumers want to know from where their food comes or how it is produced. 92%. Well, he's been ahead of the curve for many years. A professor of medicine and molecular biology and microbiology at Tufts University. He's the man behind uh, the Physicians uh, uh, Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics, the author of The Antibiotic Paradox, How Miracle Drugs Are Destroying the Miracle. And given <laughs> everywhere the articles about antibiotic uh, drug-resistant bacteria, Dr. Stuart Levy joins us today. The president of the Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics will tell us more. Our line's open with Dr. Stuart Levy joining us today. Today at 1-800-307-3002, right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now the news and views about the news you won't hear anywhere else. The Healthy Talk Radio News Digest. It's the compound most commonly associated with onions, but it's so much more. Many people know it as a natural antihistamine. Oh, yes, it works, and it works quite well. Now, thanks to a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled crossover study, the gold standard, we now know a little bit more about the health benefits of quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N. It's a flavonoid. And what they find is a daily 730 milligram supplement of quercetin, quote, led to a significant reduction in blood pressure of people who had already been diagnosed with hypertension, unquote. Published in the Journal of Nutrition, we know that quercetin, in addition to being a natural uh, antihistamine, is um, a very strong antioxidant as well. In fact, there are many nutritional physicians who believe that quercetin should be an important part of any nutritional program when it comes to optimizing um, our antioxidant potential uh, when um, challenged with diseases like cancer or more. So University of Utah quercetin supplement 730 milligrams a day, quote, led to a significant reduction in blood pressure, unquote. And oh, by the way, if your nose is stopped up, it won't be anymore. Well, it's funny films and TV shows that made children laugh, according to UCLA, and the RX Laughter, uh, which is a nonprofit organization, help them to tolerate pain for longer periods of time. They measured the ability of children to submerge their hands in icy water 
before, during, and after watching funny videos and found the funny videos make a difference. The intriguing thing about laughter is, is Japanese researchers have already shown that it inactivates 27 different genes that control blood sugar. There's something about that human uh, humor response that has amazing ability to heal. Of course, Norman Cousins uh, presented that model to all of us, but there's a growing body of evidence to uh, suggest uh, that it does make a difference. The number of smiles, the number of laughs has a beneficial effect on total body health. Well, it's men and risk of bone fracture, a Danish register study reporting in this month's issue of the British Journal of Urology indicates that bone metastasis uh, affects 90% of patients who die from prostate cancer and uh, part of that increased morbidity, in other words, uh, morbidity being complications, is due to bone fractures, bone pain, and spinal compression. Uh, that we know uh, certainly some of the therapies that are used for prostate cancer are particularly problematic for bone, including the hormone suppression therapies. So just keep in mind, men with prostate cancer are at an increased risk for bone fractures, and this hormone suppressing therapy uh, can also put men's hearts at risk as well. Well, it will appear in, um, well, actually this week's issue of the Archives of Internal Medicine, corticosteroid studies. No, we're not talking about the latest athlete <laughs> been found to uh, supplement with human growth hormone or, or other uh, uh, medications. Uh, what they found was interesting. Corticosteroid studies funded by the companies that produce the drugs are less likely to find those drugs to have adverse effects than studies funded by other sources. We're talking about the inhaled corticosteroids that are, are the cornerstone therapy for inflammatory respiratory diseases, particularly asthma, according to uh, Children's Hospital in Valencia, Spain. And, of course, steroids affect our body's nutrients more than any other single classification of drugs. And the downsides of the chronic use of steroids uh, are just very well known. Rapid, uh, massive weight gain, suppression of the immune system, thinning of the bones, increased risk of cataracts, increased risk of cognitive, uh, the ability to think. A little uh, scary because we give these drugs to children now because they have more allergies and asthma than ever before. Corticosteroid studies funded by companies that produce the drugs are less likely to find those drugs have adverse effects than studies funded by other sources. And, of course, if you want to get a full spectrum of the adverse events of corticosteroids, pick up, um, oh, the book by um, uh, pharmacist Ross Pelton and Jim Laval, uh, Drug-Induced Nutrient Depletion. Those steroids deplete the body of more nutrients than any single other classification of drugs. Miss a little sleep last night? Well, according to Harvard and University of California, Berkeley, published in the the current issue of Current Biology out today, you may be a little testy. 
that even a little lack of sleep causes the brain's emotional centers to dramatically overreact to negative emotions. So if you're at the office today and can't figure out why somebody just, you know, come on, chill, just just cool, maybe they missed a little sleep last night. They actually use functional magnetic resonance imaging scans of the brain to find that sleep restores our emotional brain circuits. So keep that in mind <laughs> next time your child is overreacting. A nap. Oh, my mother knew it. Might help. Well, we know broccoli helps reduce your risk of prostate cancer. In fact, eating it once a week reduces your risk of prostate cancer by 52%. In fact, reduces your risk of colon cancer and other forms of cancer. We now know, thanks to Johns Hopkins University research uh, appearing in the current proceedings of the National Academy of Science, that eating broccoli helps your skin fend off damage from harmful ultraviolet radiation. It's not a sunscreen, but it helps fortify the cells to fight off the damage that they store when they're exposed to radiation. John Hopkins University researchers have been studying this sulforaphane, that compound in broccoli, a sprout extract, for more than 15 years. Uh, They've tried it on a number of people testing different doses of broccoli extract on several small patches of skin in the laboratory, exposing that skin to burning ultraviolet radiation and comparing the redness, indicating that um, depending upon your genetic closet, the protection from broccoli against the damaging effects of radiation on the skin uh, can range from 8 to 78% protection. So (laughs) the skin protection of the future may be all about broccoli. Well, speaking of protection, if you want to significantly reduce your risk of heart failure, lower your blood pressure, and ward off heart attacks, U.S. researchers from Brigham and Women's and Harvard indicating eat whole grains. If you eat a grain, make it a whole grain. It lowers your risk of heart failure. And, of course, we now have rampant rates of heart failure in this country, and many people uh, never see a whole grain, continuing to eat uh, processed grains in that meat-sweet diet. We're going to return to talk with uh, Dr. Stuart Levy. It is everywhere. What do you need to know about the bad bacteria, the antibiotic paradox, how miracle drugs have destroyed the miracle with Dr. Stuart Levy from Tufts University joining us today right here on Healthy Talk Radio. You want to know more about health care than your doctor does? Then you should be listening to Healthy Talk Radio with Deborah Ray. Well, it is certainly appropriate with every major newswire story a service today having at least one story out about Hospital-acquired infections, MRSA, um, food-borne illness. Uh, it, it just goes on and on. Nocosomial infections. To have a well-known expert, but he, he's much more. He, he's a noted educator at, at Tufts University, a noted research scientist, uh, a, an author. His most recent book, The Antibiotic Paradox, How Miracle Drugs Are Destroying the Miracle. But he is a true pioneer 
um, as the president of the Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics that we <laughs> have a real problem on our hands. He joins us today uh, to talk more about it. He's Dr. Stuart Levy who joins us. Dr. Levy, hello and welcome. It's wonderful to be back. How are you? I'm well. How Good. about you? I'm fine. It's exciting this week, that story. It is. Or last and, week, I guess, by now. And the numbers, yeah. not only what's happening inside hospitals, in locker rooms, <laughs> in grocery stores, your insight, Dr. Levy. Well, you know, Deborah, it's been creeping up, and it's not a big surprise to those of us who've been following the field. However, I think having the numbers, actually knowing that the magnitude of the problem is what it is today, and that it's not slowing down, and we have to do something about it, I think is critically important. So if we take a look at what happened in hospitals, and, and you know, how did this phenomenon make its way into the community? Help well, us to understand that, Dr. Levy. It is a bit of a mystery, which you hope to sort out. But there are two different kinds of MRSA, MRSA, otherwise known as methicillin-resistant staph aureus. It's the staph that's the organism, and the rest of it has to do with its ability to resist many different antibiotics. But there are two different kinds. One that is in the hospitals that we have been facing, and it comes in different varieties, but it has a similar kind of resistance gene. The second kind started to emerge uh, within the last decade uh, in the community. And here's the mystery. We don't know where it came from. And it's very different from the kind that's in the hospital. It would be okay if it's very different if you would think it would be a little milder because it's in the community where we think there are less sick people and so forth. But it's more virulent. It makes toxins, it destroys the tissues of the skin, it can get into the bloodstream, and we see that it can cause death in young, healthy people. Fortunately, that event is rare, unusual, but it can happen. So if we take a look at at other countries' focus, particularly on the hospital choir, the no-cosomial infections, Mm -hmm. um, help us to understand um, what we read about, uh, like the search-and-destroy methods. Are we overlooking? In fact, I know there's some hospitals, you know better than all of us, Dr. Levy, that are, are really making a difference in some of these arenas. Yes. This organism survives in the environment very well. And it survives on hands, and people carry it in their nose. Some people have it on their skin as as much as uh, between 1 and 10%, depending on the survey. And it doesn't cause any harm. But they can pass it to other people who might be susceptible because they have an open cut, their defenses are down, they haven't been sleeping, all that sort of stuff. But the important point is, in certain hospitals, certainly in Europe, When you get into the hospital, the first thing they do is they look to see if you have MRSA. And if you do, you get relegated to a different part of the hospital, and they get rid of it. At least they try. And you are treated in a separate set of rooms and a separate wing. This happens in uh, Australia, happens in Holland, happens in other portions of northern Europe. We don't do anything that draconian. What we do do is, however, is to, if we know you have MRSA, we put you in a separate room so you don't spread it to other patients. And that seems to work. But despite that, 
with everyone coming into emergency rooms and visiting uh, patients and so forth, uh, these organisms tend to circulate in hospitals, and patients in hospitals are very sick and are therefore vulnerable to infections by organisms such as MRSA. So that being said, um, you know, we, we hear the interviews on the morning news, oh, you know, new antibiotics are going to be discovered. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's money, that, that's time consuming. Uh, you know, I, I continue to read in the medical literature about, uh, well, just this past week about the inappropriate use of antibiotics for, for sore throats, uh, for otitis media. We, we have talked about this before, as yeah. you know. And that's kind of the basis of, the, of my book, is to get the point across that antibiotics are developed and made to treat bacteria and don't have any effect on viruses, which are the cause of most colds. But people, I think less, but still, lots of people believe that antibiotics are what they need for a common cold, the sniffles. They don't even have fevers. And this use of the antibiotic just destroys a lot of the good bacteria we carry that protect us from uh, the so-called bad bacteria mm-hmm. and allow them to get in, find a niche, and we're at risk. And more than that, we create an environment of resistant types of bacteria which can trade their resistances with other bacteria in the environment, like you swap baseball cards. I mean, it's uh, it's a phenomenon that I think has underpoint the resistance problem that faces us today, that bacteria are not just, those who have the resistances are not just destined to be the only ones with it. They like to share them. And if they share it with even one, then with the antibiotic there, that one survives and soon multiplies, and you have many populations of drug-resistant bacteria. Hmm. Hmm. So, you know, given the fact that we, we see these sobering numbers, you know, bed sores affecting one in ten, failure to heal wounds with a hundred thousand amputations each year in this country, uh, you know, the 2.1 million, uh, per year hospital acquired infections, um, you know, we now find antibiotic residues in water supply systems. Does anybody know, you know, to, to what extent um, you know, antibiotic uh, residues and water supply systems may add to this whole scenario, Dr. Levy. Well, antibiotics are, you know, one famous <laughs> scientist said that there's like a thin, a very thin coating of antibiotics everywhere in the world uh, because so many tons have been used over the really only past half a century. But uh, the Identification of antibiotic residues in waters, fortunately, are very, very small, but it's troublesome because while at the at the amounts they're at, they wouldn't touch you or me or anybody, but they could be concentrated into uh, marine animals such as snails and, and uh, shellfish where they could have an effect on the bacteria and then that they come into the eating and on the plates of people eating raw oysters and so forth. So we we don't say that they're perfectly innocuous, but the two questions are why are they leaching their way in? Well, right. most of this we think is coming from the use in animals, in large farms, and that's a practice uh, where antibiotics were given to these animals to help them grow. And that has 
subsequently been shown to be because it kind of treats an, an underlying small grade infection which uh, in Europe uh, is no longer an issue because they banned this use of antibiotics, right. noting that better hygiene, better way of raising them, even if it costs a little bit more money, in the long run saves money in the use of these drugs. So we're headed in that direction, I'm pleased to say, through our own Center for Veterinary Medicine at the FDA. But we're not there yet. So what that means is we're using almost half the antibiotics we make in animals and agriculture, which is a lot for the environment. So that contributes. Dr. Levy, hold that thought. We don't want to miss a minute. Dr. Stuart Levy joining us today, the president for the Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics. We're talking about hospital-acquired infections, methicillin-resistant staph aureus infections, and more. Your phone calls welcome on Healthy Talk Radio. All talk, all the time. This is TalkZone.com, Internet Talk Radio. The information on Healthy Talk Radio may be eye-opening, controversial, and disturbing to some, but it is all well-documented and presented by credentialed guests as well as our knowledgeable host. It may not represent the views of this network, this radio station, or its sponsors, but it might just be good for your health. Dr. Stuart Levy joining us today. He's a well-known educator, research scientist, author. Make sure that you have not only read the book, The Antibiotic Paradox, How Miracle Drugs Are Destroying the Miracle, uh, but also log on to an important website, uh, because whether it's how and when to take antibiotics, resistance to multiple drugs, factors that contribute to antibiotic resistance, there's much more information online at the Alliance for the Prudent Use of of antibiotics. It's simply www.apua, Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics, apua.org, uh, with Dr. Stuart Levy joining us today at 1 800 307 3002. So, uh, tell us, you know, are, are we past washing hands? Do we need to res- resort to the big guns? Where you do know, we find it's a, ourselves? It's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful question. I certainly hope not. I think, in fact, um, we've spent too much time disregarding that very, very simple procedure that I think our grandparents and the days before antibiotics began an excuse for not doing it, uh, it was common practice. I, I say I'd like to put out a sign, and we probably will, is wash your hands before lunch. Because I think most people get up in the morning, they wash, they brush their teeth, they have their breakfast, they've washed, that's fine. They haven't met anybody except who else is in the household. So breakfast isn't a problem. You then go to lunch, and you've had that whole morning with all these people shaking hands, and hand-to-mouth is the way most infections are passed. And yet, think about it, most people do not wash their hands before they go to lunch. They just say, oh, uh, let's go for lunch. They all go. Dinner, another time where mostly I think people wash their hands. But I can remember in high school where the teachers would say, in my day, go wash your hands before you have lunch. That's not true anymore. And that is the most important and most and, and the easiest way to prevent the spread of infections, both viruses and bacteria. 
You know, I, I marvel. You know, mother's adages. I was of that generation. You know, yes. the, the fish is brain food, and the curly, you know, the, the crust of bread for curly hair. We dared not come near food unless we had washed our hands first. Right, right, and I think that. You know, when you're at home all day, it probably doesn't matter as much because those bacteria are around. But, you know, when you go to the bathroom, you should. It's such a simple thing. And soap and water is all you need, Deborah. You don't need anything else. If you don't have soap and water, then these alcohol-based sanitizers are excellent. The FDA uh, had a, a large uh, review of this whole subject uh, in October about a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. well, uh, two years ago and came down very strongly on the fact that soap and water is all you need, uh, warm sudsy is good, and if you don't have it around, then just uh, use the alcohol sanitizers. But I think lunch is where most people do not take this thought in mind. Because, you know, we have places like the cruise ships, I mean, they've almost taken it to the extreme. <laughs> well, there you it's a very good example, sure. Uh, you get it. Certainly, you can pick up infections from the food we eat, uh, but that's why we tend or we ask that when you are preparing your meats, which are the ones most likely contaminated on the outside, that you use a different surface than you do if you're preparing your fresh salads. And that separates the cooked from the uncooked, but it's while it's uncooked that you have uh, bacteria associated. Many are not problematic. Most aren't, but for patient people, I would say patients, but people who have some compromise to their host defense system, but they can be subject to these infections, such as the one we began the discussion, which is MRSA. Today's Wall Street Journal is, is talking about uh, uh, you know hospitals and changing laws, reporting overall infections oh, rates yeah. publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that part of the solution as well, Doctor Levy? Well, you know, it's going to come back to bite the hospitals. I I, I must say, what's happening uh, to expand that more is that infections in hospitals that are believed that could have been prevented will no longer be paid for by Medicare and the third-party payers. They're saying to the hospital, you clean up your act, you prevent these infections, because we're not going to pay for them anymore. Well, that's a very, very strong message. And whereas at my own hospital, I think we've been adhering to this, because we don't like patients to stay in too long, so we have these alcohol dispensing uh, solutions all around, and we make sure that we triage, put patients who have infectious uh, problems in separate rooms and we we adhere to good hygiene and good hospital practice so as not to allow spread but I think this is going to be an important change in uh, hospital management in hospitals throughout the country the foodborne illness you, you, you brought it up Dr. Levy mm-hmm. I mean what can each and every one of us to do because we've seen you know some very big players make some significant changes in terms of the use of uh, antibiotics in, in you know uh, farm animals to which we look for food sources yeah I think that what happens is that the people uh, and let's put it this way it's a practice of raising animals in large amounts right and large quantities and from the early 50s it was discovered that antibiotic use at low levels 
would allow the animals to grow better. Well, we now know that that is because they all suffer from some kind of underlying intestinal disease, small, uh, not making them terribly sick, but just covering it with a little antibiotics allowed them to absorb food better. Uh, that's what we learn now. But the practice continues. And what is the consequence of that practice? All of the antibiotic that's used in animals eventually reaches the environment. Think about it. it it's put into water sure, in the sure, feed that goes sure. all over. We did some of the studies to show that it's all over the farm. And so these bacteria survive because they're resistant. They then travel with the animal products to the marketplace. Uh, some cause disease, and that's when you hear about it, but many do not, fortunately. But we don't want those resistant bacteria to become part of our normal skin and intestinal flora. So we've got to wash our hands. We should wash them, wash, rinse them, the meat. We should set, make, uh, prepare the meat on separate counters that we can clean down with bleach or, or some other um, disinfectant before we use it again. And salads and uncooked vegetables should be done in a separate part of the kitchen, which is clean. Now, part of that, you know, responsible use of, of antibiotics, you know, necessitates the, the you know, the discussion, um, you know, just as you say, you know, all these reasons why we think we need an antibiotic, but it's probably uh, due to a viral infection. What about the, the discussion? Is it well placed, Dr. Levy, to ask about, you know, the continued use of these broad spectrum antibiotics when possibly, you know, something a little less weighty may work? Well, as you brought up, there are two sort of large views of, of antibiotics. Ones are that they're narrow. We call them narrow spectrum. They hit a certain group of bacteria, uh, which uh, is still pretty big, but doesn't cover the whole field. So they're called narrow. And the others are broad spectrum, which tend to be used when you don't know what you're treating. But it only means that you're affecting a large number of bacteria, enormous numbers that are in the environment, most of them. So these are called the broad-spectrum antibiotics. The problem is that we don't, in many instances, know what we're treating. If we're in the hospital, we can start, for instance, with a broad-spectrum coverage because we don't know what's there. Once we know what's there, we should, we're told, and we tried to advise our students and our residents that we learn what the organism is. If it's a narrow spectrum treatable, we use a narrow spectrum, we switch. But in the community, we don't have those kinds of diagnostic facilities readily available. And that, I think, is where we're headed now, and you'll hear more and more about it. It's the big word, diagnostics. Can we make a rapid diagnosis that this is a viral illness, mm -hmm. not bacteria. Right. And there's some new uh, tests coming down the road, which hopefully will be inexpensive enough and can be done in the hospital in the doctor's office so it'll be covered, because that will make a huge difference. The other kinds of tests which are out there, mostly for the hospital, is, is this a MRSA infection? Right. Is this right. a pneumococcal infection? What kind of organism is it? And that will tell us immediately what kinds of antibiotics we should be thinking of. And even better, if we know by these rapid tests that the bacterial cause of the disease is susceptible, we know what drug to use. So the big word here is 
new rapid diagnostics. And they're on their way. They're not there yet, but they're on their way. And that is going to truly revolutionize how we approach a sick patient when we can immediately tell you or tell that patient, mm-hmm. oh, you've got a viral illness, no antibiotics. Excellent, excellent. Now, wh- where are we with um, you know one of the all too common, uh, perhaps uh, you know it's in the, in the past, the use of antibiotics in, in children. You know that disturbing statistic from the American Academy of Pediatrics that 95 percent of children in this country, by the time they reach the age of five, will have had an ear infection treated by an antibiotic. Doctor Levy. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, one of the important things we've noticed is that if you go to Europe, to Holland, and northern to Scandinavian countries, and in England. An ear infection is not immediately treated with an antibiotic. The parents of these kids don't expect it. Uh, There is, I don't know whether to say there's a better respect, but there's this feeling that, you know, I don't want to use antibiotics on my kid unless I have to. It isn't true necessarily here, though it's improving. What happens is, The doctor gives symptomatic therapy to the child, and in 95% of the cases, the child's ear infection is over within 24, at the most 48 hours, and no antibiotic was needed. In this country, we're moving that way. I think the newer statistics will show that less antibiotics are being given to children, but we still use a lot more than other countries that take this more... Uh, conservative approach, but not threatening to say, even in my day when you would give the prescription and say, don't fill it, I'll right. just give it to you, but right. call me tomorrow. Right. Yeah, I've, 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 I've marveled at some of that coming out that, you know, if you, in fact, the studies behind that, you well know, Dr. Levy, if people think that they have it just in case, <laughs> it's right. a completely different outcome. Yeah, and, and that I think brings up an important point that we've discussed on on earlier shows is that the stockpiling of antibiotics that occurs in homes and that's really a no-no. I think the the epitome of that was during the period after the anthrax letters when people right, were right. stockpiling oh. ciprofloxacin until it was, they were running out of it in the in the pharmacies and they would put it in their medicine chest and wait for a sign of a disease, which fortunately didn't occur, but would never have been easy to detect because the early signs of anthrax are just like a cold. So it would be, oh, I'll take my Cipro now. But I think patients and and families who don't finish their prescription of antibiotics, that's already one no-no, but the worst, I think, is to then stockpile what's remaining and say, oh, well, I'll save this for the next episode when you have less than necessary amount of the drug and you'll be using it ineffectively and you're playing doctor. I mean, would you change the motor in your car? I don't think so. So why are you taking on your own body? Which back to uh, you know to, to mother's adages uh, for for just a moment um, you know given that we're now reading in a much more widespread fashion at least uh, I think we are Dr Levy um, is that we are microbial beings you know that mother's adages about you know maintaining a healthy balance with fermented foods like sauerkraut and and uh, you know f- uh, natural active culture fermented dairy products you know I see it from a marketing standpoint. 
help us to understand from from a medical from a science standpoint you know are we moving more to that model of uh, you know we have to maintain that balance of good to bad bacteria in our environment and within ourselves as well absolutely and i think any way of doing that is is wonderful anything that is safe uh, I do know that uh, lactobacillus, which is uh, used to restore the intestinal flora of people and have been used actually in certain systemic diseases, is, uh, is scientifically demonstrated. It's fabulous. Not in everything. So, I mean, the point is if you jump from one good study and say, well, if it works in that, it'll work in this other disease, that's not necessarily true. One has to look at the study based on the disease. But I very much believe in this area of uh, probiotics. I also believe in living and a healthy life. And by that, sure. it sounds like a, <laughs> like a simple <laughs> adage. But one should be eating well, drinking well, I mean drinking lots of fluids, and getting a good night's sleep. Dr. Nothing's hold that worse thought. for the immune system than Please. poor sleep. We'll be back with more. The Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics, Dr. Stuart Levy, on Healthy Talk Radio. America's number one source for healthcare information, news, and medical breakthroughs. Making America healthy coast to coast. It's Healthy Talk Radio with Deborah Ray. Delighted and honored uh, when we have the opportunity to listen and learn to uh, an important educator or a real pioneer. Uh, as the president of the Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics, educator, research scientist, and author, Dr. Stuart Levy, his book, The Antibiotic Paradox, How Miracle Drugs Are Destroying the Miracle, the website, APUA, Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics.org. And we left to, to talk about some important um, you know, lifestyle steps because why? It's certainly, you know, the negative news makes the news, Dr. Levy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, lifestyle does make a difference. Walk us through. You talked about hydration, eating well. Yeah, I think your, I think exercise, which is, I think the most important new trend in the United States when you see uh, all these machines in use, uh, colleges and homes, people jogging. Uh, that's important to build up your muscles and get your heart rate running so that you are uh, actually exercising your body, your, all the tissues of your body. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to feed it. You've got to have plenty of fluids. Uh, and so that's part of it. But to me, the most, you know, critically important feature of your whole ability to resist infections is to get sleep. And seven to eight hours of sleep is generally recommended. Uh, oftentimes it's not possible, but to sneak in an extra, extra hour here and there, this is important because studies have definitely shown that, uh, lack of sleep leads to a decrease in your host in your ability to counteract the invaders, the infectious agents that come in. The information at the Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics, great both practitioner and consumer information. Uh, Do you plan to update the book, or are there other additional sources of information in the near future, Dr. Levy? I certainly do. I think that as new information 
come board uh, that this should be transmitted in some quick way to the uh, population, the people, your listeners, other listeners, so that we can be proud of a healthier population than we have. And, you know, if we aren't sick with an infectious disease, we don't need the pills and we won't have resistance. Simple. Good point. Good point. And you've been spreading that message for many years. Number, yes, I have. <laughs> and it's I think full circle. It's working. I hope it is. I thank you. <laughs> you were right all along, Dr. Levy. Please come back again. Thank I you will so be much. Pleased. Thank you for the invitation. Dr. Stuart Levy joining us today. Again, keep in mind the Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics, important consumer information, www.apua.org. Our thanks to Dr. Stuart Levy. Our thanks to you. If you missed anything, the show archived for two weeks, HealthyTalkRadio.com. I'm Deborah A. reminding you, live long, stay healthy.